This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we're joined by a panel of experts to discuss the language variation known as African American English, or AAE. Our guests share the often dangerous effects of misdiagnosing AAE as a language disorder. The outcome can be life-changing. And find out why our guests say the language variance is sometimes considered a taboo subject. Plus, we explore the link between identity and language. I think we have a, a great understanding of identity when it comes to clothes we wear, hairstyle, hair texture, region of the country we live in, right? We understand these identity things, but when it comes to language, we have this very flippant way of being like, no, 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 just change the way you speak. In our second of two episodes in honor of Black History Month, today we're addressing African-American English. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Maximizing Functional Outcomes for Individuals with Traumatic Brain Injuries. This continuing education opportunity begins March 18th. Learn more at on.asha.org slash T-B-I. That's capital T, capital B, capital I. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from the ASHA Workload Calculator. Learn more by going to asha.org and searching ASHA Workload Calculator. African-American English, or AAE, is a language variation. Maybe you've heard it called a dialect. It sounds different than mainstream American English, has its own rules, has its own grammar, and it comes from a long language tradition. But when AAE is not recognized, it can be misdiagnosed as a language disorder. And that comes with troubling results. The difficulties surrounding misunderstandings can complicate lives. Joining me now to discuss AAE, its history, how it's viewed, and its identification are three experts. Joining us from Alabama is Megan Brett Hamilton. Megan Brett is an SLP and a faculty member at Auburn University, where she investigates the experiences of AAE speakers in the classroom. Megan Brett, welcome. Thank you for having me. And you can read an article on AAE by Megan Brett in our January-February issue of The Leader magazine and on our website. In the same issue, you can also read an article by our next guest. Diana Latimer-Hearn is a school-based SLP and a consultant who works on issues surrounding language differences in schools. Diana, welcome. Thank you for having me. And finally, Yolanda Feimster-Holt is with us from North Carolina. Yolanda is an SLP as well, and she's a speech scientist at East Carolina University, where she researches the phonology of AAE and language variations. Yolanda, welcome. Thank you for having me. Diana, can you help us set up a, a context? When we talk about African-American English, what is it that we're talking about? I mean, what, what are some of the traits that we might see? Well, we're looking at all of the domains of language. So you have to look at pragmatics, semantics, syntax, morphology, and phonology. There are distinct rule-based things that are taking place within the dialect that distinguish it from mainstream. So frequently people identify the syntactic differences. So um, differences in word order and the way that we would say things are usually perceived as grammar, and that's different um, in AAE when you compare it to mainstream. And so we, it really is a complex system that I think doesn't get the respect that it needs. And so most often, those are the features that people kind of harp on or speak about when they're discussing AAE, whether or not they recognize it as a legitimate dialect. So things such as multiple negation or uh, negative concord, where all of the words that can reflect negation in a sentence are used as the negative form. So you can say, I don't have no rather than I don't have any. 
And there are a lot of different features that make it distinct. Yeah, I heard you say that sometimes this language variation doesn't get the respect that you feel it deserves. Is that correct? Definitely. Megan Brett, is that something that you would agree with or not? Yes, I agree with that statement. I think that there are a lot of different ways to speak English. We know this. There are many different ways to speak English. And only some of those different ways that people speak English are looked at as stigmatized or are looked at as you know not legitimate, improper, wrong grammar, improper grammar, broken English, many different negative terminologies that we use. But if you look closely at it, oftentimes the dialects that are spoken by a certain group of people are the ones that are stigmatized, right? So African-American English is stigmatized oftentimes because of the people who speak African-American English, right? There are different dialectal variations within English. Uh, There's British English, there's Australian English, there's um, lots of different kinds. But those aren't necessarily stigmatized. If you look at the actual people who speak them, you think, oh, okay, that's wonderful. They, they speak this dialect and that's wonderful. If someone says schedule versus schedule, that is a different dialect variation of the word schedule from mainstream American English, and schedule is not frowned upon. But we say this versus dis, then that word dis seems to be frowned upon because of the person who is actually speaking that word. So yes, I completely agree that there are certain dialects that are stigmatized against versus others. Megan Brett, we're talking about language, but we're also talking about language that can lead to misdiagnoses in the speech room with an SLP. Can you talk to this? Yes. So um, what happens is it starts pretty early on, actually. I think what's going on is, one, in our pre-service education, we are supposed to be implementing culturally responsive curriculum, right? So we're supposed to be teaching our speech language pathologists, who are predominantly white females, about cultural linguistic differences that they're going to encounter in the school systems and, you know, in other venues as well. But we'll talk about schools for the purposes of this podcast. So then what happens is you have speech language pathologists who graduate from school and they go to the school systems and either they have had some um, experiences with working with African-American English speaking children, perhaps in their internships, or if they haven't, perhaps they've had a little bit of knowledge in the textbooks. But more than likely, even if they haven't had that, they have tests that they use And the majority of these tests do not consider African-American English variation within the scope of their scoring. The difficulty with all of that is if you have the knowledge of AAE and you give these tests, then you're able to use your own background knowledge and say, okay, I understand that this child was using AAE. I'm going to make sure I, I, I mark that down in the report writing saying, although this child scored this way, it is known that he's an African-American English speaker and you know so forth. But if you do not have that knowledge, if you do not have that background understanding, then you are going to misassess this child, therefore misdiagnose this child, and therefore inherit IEPs that have goals listed for AAE correction. And so let's talk about that. What are the ways that someone might be able to detect a child is an African-American English speaker? There are several ways. Well, one way, so let's take if you're just going to be very formal about it, a test called the Diagnostic Evaluation for Language Variation, the DELV, is a test out there that has a screening portion as well as a formalized full evaluation where you can give the test to a child to determine whether A, they are a speaker of non-mainstream American English, and as far as what kind of um, intensity, I guess, or the density of the 
dialect that they use, and also if they are at risk for a language disorder. But there's other ways you can do it too. You can pay attention and you can listen to the child. You can gather a language sample of the child. You can listen to the patterns that they use. Are these patterns consistent? Has this child used the possessive? Uh, there's a way we can mark possessive in African-American English by owner plus thing owned. I, I, I got that from Wheeler and Swords, and I, I love that uh, definition of it. Is this child consistently using my mom car, my teacher hat? Listen to the familiar communication partners of this child. Does this child sound like their familiar communication partners? Right. Oftentimes we'll think about the mom and say, oh, well, she does speak like the mom. So, OK. And the mom sounds like they speak African-American English. So, OK, there we go. But it's not always the mom who's the most familiar communication partner. It could be grandma. It could be a cousin. You could do a dynamic assessment. You can determine whether this child has the ability to pick up on mainstream American English rules if you actually expose them to these rules. So this child hasn't been using the subject verb agreement, um, the, the S with possessives, the S with regular plurals. This child, I haven't seen them demonstrate that. But if I ask them specifically and directly to add an S to the end of two cats, can they do it? They can do it? Great. Got it. They have the ability to learn language. If we're going to say that the way this child is speaking is incorrect, we're going to say that the way that their grandmother speaks is incorrect, the way that their pastor speaks is incorrect, the way that their cousin speaks is incorrect. We're going to say a whole community of people are speaking incorrectly. And that's just not true. And so I think what's important for us to understand is, wow, I hear the way they're speaking. That means their language, their capacity to learn language is typical. That's how it's supposed to work. And can, can I add to that? I think that we fail to recognize the other side of the equation. It's advantageous in some communities for me to speak in mainstream, but it's the same amount of advantage for me to do the opposite um, when I enter another community. So it doesn't, I'm not suggesting that a person has to be able to code switch, but we can't look at the value of doing so from AAE to, to MAE and not also acknowledge the value of going from MAE back to AAE. Before we move on to the next thing, there's a second part that's related specifically to the fact that a person can speak African-American English and have a speech disorder or a language disorder. So when we're talking about the identification of whether or not a person does or does not speak African-American English, we want to be clear to the listening audience that there are levels, as uh, Megan Brett said, of dialect density. No African-American speaker uses everything on the list all the time. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the link between language and identity. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Maximizing Functional Outcomes for Individuals with Traumatic Brain Injuries. From March 18th to March 30th, this continuing education opportunity will share practical strategies for improving functional outcomes and quality of life. You can earn up to 2.6 ASHA CEUs for participating. Learn more at on.asha.org T-B-I. That's capital T, capital B, capital I. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from the ASHA Workload Calculator. It's designed to help SLPs in schools track their direct and indirect service times and advocate for a better workload. Learn more by going to asha.org and searching ASHA Workload Calculator. When we talk about this misdiagnosis, overdiagnosis, underdiagnosis, what's at stake? 
a lot is at stake. Educational trajectory, right? Educational outcomes, career. Oftentimes, a lot of Black parents try really hard not to have their child get a label. Exactly. And I say a label meaning special education or um, speech and language impaired or name a label because of the educational trajectory of not only a Black child in the American educational system, but that a Black child with a label in the educational American system. It's there are poor outcomes. It, it leads to negative teacher perceptions, right? And not all teachers, I, I'm not saying this about all teachers, but oftentimes you come into the classroom with a label already and, you know, teachers think one way about the academic performance perhaps that you're going to display or the behavioral performance that you'll display. And African-American children in general already come with a preconceived label, right? <laughs> so I think it's not a loaded question, but it's there's so much to it. There's, there is so much, so many layers to it. But there's also the idea of underdiagnosis, not just the overdiagnosis, where children actually need the services, but the SLP who is less well-educated would say that this child is using African-American English and not go any further because they're less familiar with the dialect. I think also, I think one of the issues, and I've had this from a lot of my students, is not only do we need to think about this linguistically, like we've been talking about, but there's this cultural piece, right? That there's a huge cultural piece to what we're talking about. And oftentimes when I speak to speech language pathologists, one of the concerns they have is, well, I don't know how to speak to these black families, right? Like, I don't know how to comfortably speak. Well, do I call them black or do I call them African-American, right? Like, so I think there, there's all these different layers that that are going to occur, not just about the language, but about the cultural, the racial, the ethnic piece behind it, and about communication interactions between speech language pathologists and the families that they're working with, right? I don't think it's necessarily just understanding the language. I think we also have to understand how to work with each other and how to give each other the respect when we have conversations about it. And I know it's hard. It's very difficult. You know, if you speak a certain way, you go into a certain community, you're going to be like an outsider, even though you are Black. And that's what happens to me too, right? I, I show up and they hear me speak a certain way. They're like, oh, okay, got it. So switch it up, make sure you're comfortable. But I can only imagine how that must feel for some speech language pathologists who say, well, I'm not sure. I don't know what to say. I don't know the correct terminology now. I don't know how to bring up, you know, talking about African-American English when I'm a white SLP. So as part of that discussion, the idea that AAE itself is taboo. Because if AAE were not taboo, it would not be taboo to talk about the way you understand it, what you know about it. You would have a conversation about AAE the same way you would have a conversation about any language form that you're unfamiliar with. Help me to understand this because I want to work with you. Tell me what you mean by taboo. Well, if you're going into the classroom and the classroom teacher is educating us because of the educational system that they've been informed in, that there is a way to speak English, and that way is mainstream American English. And if you don't use mainstream American English, as we have been discussing, that there's the, the other one is wrong. And it's true for Southern American English, Appalachian American English, Chicano English. It's true for all other Englishes that we can't talk about it because it's not supposed to be here. That's what I mean by taboo. Literally, it's, it's taboo as in it's not supposed to be here, so we can't discuss it. My research, when I worked on my dissertation, I did focus group interviews with teachers, and the majority of the teachers were white, white females. It was very difficult for me to get them to talk about 
African-American English. One, the terminology, they never really heard of it. But two, it was very difficult for them to talk about educating Black children, right? It was a lot easier for them to talk about English language learners. English language learners seemed to be a topic that they were comfortable with. And I think it has something to do with this dialect versus language piece. I keep trying to get us to understand that because I don't know what it is about America. Here in America, I think it's because of our history. Jim Crow laws and civil rights have happened in our in our country. I think it makes it a taboo discussion. I think it's also very charged. So anytime you mention it to someone, you don't know exactly what direction that, that conversation might go if they're not educated about dialect. And how can they be educated about dialect if we're not able to discuss it in a classroom setting or an educational setting? So I think we're kind of reproducing the same problem if we don't introduce that in the classroom, because the the students aren't going to be understanding or tolerant of variation if it's constantly placed outside of that setting. One of the ways that you can sometimes help to bridge that gap for people who may be interested in doing that is to talk about whatever the regional dialect is wherever you are. We all have regional dialect variation. Every group of us does. And so when you're talking about African-American English with a group, you can sometimes bring people, and we're typically talking about white females for the most part, into the conversation by having them think back to their grandparents because we're talking about language changes over time. So the way the grandparents spoke was different than the way that the, their parents spoke and then the way that the, the students in the classroom speak. And if we can get them to think about language variation and change in that way, then we can talk or introduce the idea of African-American English as just another system and get that conversation started. It's not the end of it, but it's at least an entree into the idea of dialect variation and uh, language change and system variation and the fact that you can communicate with people who use a different form or style than you do and that it's not invalid because you don't use it. But I want to hark back to something that Megan Brett discussed with respect to the, the different ways of speaking, the idea that your language is who you are. When you bring the language that the people know and can connect with to that space, you feel at home. And I do not talk to my family and friends the way that I am talking to you on this podcast right now. This is a way for me to communicate specific ideas to a larger audience. But what makes me feel at home is the way that I could talk to those people. And it's very Southern, and it's not something that most of us would understand if you're not part of that community. And I think we owe that to these children, to give them that space to be who they are so that they can learn and acquire the education that they're entering into the school to receive. I would love it if... We got to the point where little children, the same way we have children who are entering the school systems in kindergarten and, you know, maybe five years old, and they'll say, oh, this is so interesting. I'm learning how to speak, you know, English in the classroom. But guess what? I speak Spanish at home. Guess what? I speak Korean at home. I would love it if we could get to the point where we have little African-American children say, I speak African-American English at home. I, I think we we have a great understanding of identity when it comes to clothes we wear, hairstyle, hair texture, region of the country we live in, right? We understand these identity things, but when it comes to language, we have this very flippant way of being like, no, 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 just change the way you speak. No big deal. No big deal. But I I think we need to bring that importance to language 
not just to being speech language pathologists, but also just to the community as a whole. Like the way you speak is a huge part of your identity. Can we talk about code switching? Well, code switching is a superpower. I'll say that. And uh, I had a conversation with a linguist that I think that African-American people who code switch should be given credit for knowing a foreign language. Because code switching above all else has a pragmatic value, even above the idea of being able to manipulate the language, because it allows you to seamlessly, as Dion said, move in between societies and be, as Joe Biden said to President Obama, he is so well spoken. At the same time, it can be a detriment to people who just want to be who they are. You're putting a heavy load on a 12-year-old when you're requiring them to demonstrate their competence by code switching in order to be accepted into the mainstream society when their peer, who, as you discussed, who's not exposed to mainstream American English regularly, is not able to code switch you've created this dichotomy that we talked about, this taboo that we talked about in the classroom and fully perpetuated it. Now, the listener may say, well, you guys are code switching. Well, maybe this is the way that we grew up speaking. You ever think about that? Maybe we learned African-American English later in life. Maybe that's our code switch. That's you, Megan Brett. That's me. That's me. I, I grew up speaking mainstream American English. I ended up going to an HBCU, Historically Black College University, and learned African-American English. And now that's how I code switch. So I am one of those M-A-E-A-A-E code switcher versus A-A-E-M-A-E code switchers. But I completely agree with you. I think the difficulty with this code switching conversation that we have is I think it's different when the codes that you can switch into, if they're natural to you, if they feel right to you, if they don't feel like you're not being who you are, that's great. I don't feel like I'm being someone else when I speak this way. I don't feel like I'm being someone else when I speak African-American English because they both feel comfortable and familiar to me because I learned how to speak them the way you learn to speak any language in a natural setting. But I do think the way that we look at it in the schools now, it's it's forced, right? It's a forced place. So you come and speak in African-American English, I want to teach you how to code switch young child so you have access to these opportunities and you can be successful in this academic setting. However, I don't think it's necessarily being looked at as a language kind of code switching. It's more like a language substitution. I think it's also difficult to teach another person to code switch because that's placing value on where they can and cannot use parts of their identity. Um, The way that the three of us code switch probably differs the locations and the settings in which we code switch is probably different. So who's doing it correctly? I don't know that there's a right or wrong way. It's it's a personal decision. So I don't know how a person outside of you can decide for you where you should and should not use your language. I agree. And I think sometimes we have this interesting thing where it's like, well, we're going to teach you two different ways to speak. Isn't that awesome? We're going to teach you two different ways to speak. Now we do that with foreign languages, right? <laughs> but somehow it's looked at a little bit differently. But my, my concern with that, too, is in the classroom, the optics of that. So now the optics look like these black and brown children on this side of the classroom who also happen to be in the lowest reading group. But these other children over here 
And I'm not saying they're all white because I was part of those other children speaking mainstream American English. You don't have to code switch. Don't worry. You're fine the way you are. You're fine. Don't worry about that. So on one hand, we're trying to act like it's a, it's a positive thing. We're giving you two different ways of speaking, yet we know it's not positive because what we're actually saying is, please don't speak the way that you feel most comfortable in this classroom. I don't think we should not teach African-American English speaking children to speak mainstream American English. I agree that we should teach them that, give them this resource, give them this tool so that they have the option to go through certain doors if they if they wish to. I, I do still agree with that. Even though I don't like the delivery of it, I still agree with it. Yes, I agree with you. And when we're thinking about children learning, I had a conversation with a friend yesterday. The biggest earning comics are African-American English speakers. Think of Kevin Hart. Okay, it's really interesting how it's inappropriate to use African-American English unless it can be commodified. And I think that's a big component to it. And when we think about the oral nature, the oral history that's passed down, that's required. But the ability to move between those two forms adds value. And I think maybe that would be the approach that I would suggest for all of us to think about as a value add, not a minus. Thank you to all the guests in today's episode from Auburn University, Megan Brett Hamilton, from East Carolina University, Yolanda Feimster Holt, and school-based SLP and consultant, Deanna Latimer Hearn. Hearn is an AERA, Minority Dissertation Fellowship Grant recipient. Remember, you can read articles by Megan Brett Hamilton and Deanna Latimer Hearn in the ASHA Leader. Find it online at leader.pubs.asha.org. In this episode, we talked about the importance of cultural competence among speech-language hearing professionals. If you want to read more about the many ways ASHA's Office of Multicultural Affairs, OMA, helps members address culture and language and diversity among professionals and those with communication disorders or differences, visit asha.org and search for multicultural. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference on TBI. It's called Maximizing Functional Outcomes for Individuals with Traumatic Brain Injuries, and it begins March 18th. Learn more at on.asha.org T-B-I. That's capital T, capital B, capital I. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from the ASHA Workload Calculator, Learn more by going to asha.org and searching ASHA Workload Calculator. Production assistance comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Next time on ASHA Voices, what happens when the stress of work becomes too much? We're joined by the hosts of SLP Happy Hour to talk work stress strategies and what they've learned hosting a podcast about the work lives of speech language professionals. That's next time on ASHA Voices.